0: All right, everybody can come on in and find a place to grab a seat. Who's ready to hear the Word of God this morning? All right, one of you. Well, you're getting it, whether you want it or not. I don't really know what else to preach, so that's all I've got to give you is the Word of God. So hopefully, y'all take it and apply it to your life. We're starting a new series this morning, and I'm excited to share with you what I feel like the Lord laid on my heart. In the Bible, there's about 500 verses on prayer, and from that, we could conclude that the Lord wants us to have a relationship with Him, He wants us to talk with Him, He wants us to be close with Him, and and to build relationship with Him. There's also about 500 verses on faith, and that kind of makes sense that if there's about 500 verses on prayer, there might be about the same amount on faith, because it takes faith to pray. And if you don't have faith, then you're probably not going to talk to God. And if you don't believe that there's a God that wants to have a relationship with us, then you're probably not going to pray and talk to Him very much. So if someone says something to you 500 times, you would probably come to the conclusion that that's like pretty important to them. Like if they said something to you 500 times, like that's probably something that they really want you to know, right? So then I found out that there is 2,000 verses in the Bible on money. 500 verses on prayer. This, I, was, I was surprised by this. 500 on prayer, 500 on faith. 2,000 verses on money. A statistician looked at this in the Bible and dissected the New Testament. And what he found out was that, that, that there was one in every ten verses in the New Testament had something to do with money. Jesus shared 38 parables. Sixteen of those parables had to do with money. Twenty-five percent of Jesus' teaching addresses financial resources. What that means is if I preached once a month on money, my teaching would be more aligned with the teachings of Jesus, but I probably wouldn't be a pastor for too long if I did that, so I'm not going to do that. But So Jesus had so much to say about money. He talked so much about money. But money is a thing that pastors aren't supposed to talk about. People will say things like, all the church wants is my money, or the pastor's just preaching on this because he stands to benefit from it. What's really interesting about jesus talking about money so much is jesus talked so much about money and when you look at it it's really kind of staggering how much he speaks about money but he never asks for any jesus never takes up an offering which is interesting Jesus has so much to say about money, but he never asks for any. You'll never find in the New Testament where he says, hey, guys, we need to put a new wing on the synagogue. So throughout the summer, we're going to be raising funds. I'm going to ask you to prayerfully consider giving to that. He never says, I'm trying to share this message, but I can only share it so far. I really feel like I need a chariot. If you guys could give me some money for a chariot, I'm thinking one with a gold stripe down the side. Maybe one I could fit the disciples in, like we could really get this message out there. He never says, look, I'm thinking it's time to put up a satellite campus in Ephesus. If you guys would just really consider praying and seeing if God would put it on your heart to give, he never does that. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Uh, I don't believe that raising money to advance the kingdom of God is wrong in any way, shape or form. I'm just saying Jesus never did it. So if he never did it, we kind of got to ask ourselves why, like, why didn't Jesus do that? And certainly, like, one conclusion you could come to is he's Jesus. Like, if, he, if he's thirsty and he wasn't happy with water, he could just, like, turn it to wine, so he doesn't really need money. If he's hungry and one fish isn't enough, he could just multiply it. So, like, that could be part of the reason that Jesus doesn't ask for money. But I believe a big part of the reason, what I want to focus on today, why Jesus talks so much about money but never asks for any, is he's actually not after your money. He's after something much more valuable than money. He's after your heart. Today we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. It's a sermon, that, a very famous sermon that Jesus preached. And in this sermon, he is ruthlessly going after the heart. And the fruit of a transformed heart is living generously. The fruit of a transformed heart, and that's what this series is going to be about over the next period of time, is living generously generously. We see in the New Testament that money weaves its way into you. It's not really a question of whether or not money weaves its way into you. It does. It weaves its way into each of us. And that kind of makes sense because you can't really live without money. You can't eat and you probably wouldn't have a place to stay. and You certainly wouldn't have very expensive gas to put in your car. Like We need money to live. But it weaves its way into us. It's not a question of whether it does or not. It's much more of a question of if it weaves its way into you in a toxic way that destroys you or if it weaves its way into you in a way that's freeing and life-giving. Man, if if money can weave itself into us in a way that's freeing and life-giving, I want that. I'm going to choose that over toxic and destruction. If freeing and life-giving is an option, I'm like, sign me up. So this morning I want to look at the Sermon on the Mount which is in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start reading in verse 19. This is Jesus speaking here. He says, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money." There's a number of things that Jesus shows us in this sermon that he preaches. The first, one that he, the first thing that he shows us is to be careful where you invest. This is in verse 19. He says, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So right off the bat, Jesus kind of gives us this little scenario where he says, Don't do this and do this. How many have ever said to your kids, don't do this like maybe like they're like looking at the stove and they see it and the fire looks fun and it's like don't touch the stove and then you leave the room and what does your child do like they go and they touch the stove and they're crying and their hand is burned it's like did you think that i was trying to rob from you like a great pleasure of the earth of touching the fire like what were you thinking But we do the same thing as our kids do sometimes. When God tells us not to do something, it's like somehow we think that God is trying to rob us of some pleasure that we want to experience. God is not trying to rob us of some kind of pleasure when he says, don't invest in this way. What God is doing is he's trying to save us. He's literally trying to save you from anxiety in your life, from the pressure of trying to be your own God. The Bible is so full of wisdom, we don't give it enough credit, we don't spend enough time in it, we value other things way too much. But when I look at society today and where we're at, there's two books of the Bible that I think we're kind of stuck, stuck between as Americans. The two books of the Bible that we're kind of stuck between are Ecclesiastes and Job. If you're not familiar with Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is a book of the Bible about a man named Solomon, As it turns out, Solomon was the richest man that has ever lived. Not just the richest man that was alive then. Solomon was the richest man that's ever lived on earth. If you take Solomon's wealth and extrapolate it to today's wealth, Solomon is the only trillionaire that ever walked the face of the earth. Solomon makes Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk look like chump change. You take Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and you put them together, and they still don't even come close to reaching half Of Solomon's wealth so this guy's got money for days and Solomon sets out to see if he can experience all the pleasures that life has to offer to see if it would satisfy his soul first Solomon stacks up more money like this is like swimming pool after swimming pool after swimming pool full of money that you could swim in that's the kind of money that Solomon has he thinks that might bring him pleasure Then he says, I'm going to to pile up all this land and try and get some power and see if that will give me pleasure. Then he says, I'm going to go ahead and try women and see if that will give me pleasure. I'm sorry, but it's true. It's in the Bible if you don't believe me. And he tries women, a lot of women, and it doesn't give him the pleasure that he's seeking. He throws these crazy parties that we can't even hardly wrap our mind around. And in the end, Solomon looks at it all and he goes, it's all meaningless. None of it worked. None of it gave me the pleasure that I thought it would. It's all meaningless. I mean, these parties that Solomon had are hard to even wrap your mind around. Check it out. It's in 2 Kings. Just one time Solomon has this party where he has to kill 60 cows and 400 chickens to have enough food to feed everyone at the party. Like, these parties are huge. And then he kind of gets bored at his own party. He's like, what's... What's the point of this? And so he turns the music up louder and tries to make it bigger and better. And still, in the end, he says, all this stuff that I tried, it's all meaningless. None of it brought me pleasure. None of it satisfied me in the end. So that's one extreme. Then on the other extreme, we have Job. Job loses literally everything he has. Loses it all. Everything. He loses his friends, his family, his health all of it, loses everything, gets to the bottom of that barrel, and he finds out that even in that place, God is enough. God is enough to satisfy you. God's enough to heal your pain. God is enough. And so we're kind of between those two books of the Bible. Most of us don't have Solomon kind of money, and I hate to burst your bubble, but probably none of us are going to have Solomon, kind of money. We're not going to be able to go explore every possible kind of pleasure there is on earth to see if it'll satisfy. Maybe we could just learn from Solomon's life on our own without having to try and go do that on our own. Most of us haven't lost everything in life. Most of us have experienced some level of loss, but most of us haven't lost everything. So we're kind of in between those two places. And as Americans who live very blessed lives, I mean, if you compare us to the rest of the world, even the poorest Americans are super blessed. And in that place, we're stuck in this place where we believe this lie that if I just had a little bit more, if I just had a little bit more than I have right now, then I would be satisfied. If I just had a nicer house, like, my house is just so frustrating. It's old and it's, oh, I just, if I just had a nicer house, if I just had a better spouse, like I see that spouse over there, that looks like a nice spouse. Like, if I just had a better spouse, then I would be satisfied. If my kids weren't so crazy, then I'd be satisfied. If I just had a nicer car, like I've always wanted a nicer car, if I just had a little bit more money or a better, if I just had a little bit more then I would be satisfied. John D. Rockefeller, who was one of the richest men in the world when he was alive, was asked this famous question, how much is enough? He had amassed a crazy amount of wealth. He controlled so much, and he was asked, how much is enough? And when the person asked this question, it was kind of like, dude, like, how big are you going to try and expand your empire? Like, When is enough enough? Like, when are you just going to stop trying to keep growing and getting bigger and more powerful? And he smirked and he said, just a little bit more would be enough. Just a little bit more would be enough. And that still rings true in the hearts of most Americans today. If I just had a little bit more, I could be satisfied. And Jesus walks into the center of that this morning and he says, don't fall for the trap. Don't invest your wealth Here on earth, where moths and rust will destroy, you control a lot less than you think you control. He says, Don't try and, there's not enough money in the world to guarantee your health. There's not enough money in the world to guarantee joy or peace. He says, I'm the only one that will do that. So don't simply invest here. Don't get so focused on life here that you forget to invest there. The next thing that Jesus says is, Don't let your possessions possess you. Don't let your possessions possess you. This is Matthew 6.20. It says, But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. How many of you have ever gone through that stage of having a beater car and then you kind of graduated to having a nicer car? Maybe some of you still are in the beater car stage and you're just hoping like, maybe one day i can not start my car with a screwdriver like but the thing is if you've gra- if you've graduated from having a beater car to having a nicer car you know this is true that there's a freedom that comes with a beater car there's a freedom that comes like you don't even care about that thing like one time i had a beater car and i was parked down here at walmart and i was like just walking out the door and I looked up, and I saw this tw- like probably 12-year-old girl or something like that. She had just put her groceries in the back of her dad's truck, and she decided she was going to ghost ride this cart, like 100 feet, to try and throw it and push it to let it coast, like there was a ghost driving the thing, into the shopping cart corral, right? So she's like, it just gets out of her hand, and her dad's like, no, what are you doing? What is the matter with you, child? And it, it goes, and it starts to go away from the corral, and it starts to head for my car, and I'm watching it, and I'm not even bothered by it. I'm just laughing, like, oh, this is gonna be good. It's gonna, our spark's gonna fly. Like, how bad is it gonna be? Like, I don't even care. And this girl starts chasing the cart. Her dad starts chasing her. They're trying to get to this cart before it smashes into my car. And then it smashes my car. And this cart was going faster than any cart should ever go. It, it smashes into my car so bad. And the girl falls to the ground and starts crying and the dad comes over and I, I'm walking up and I'm like, it's okay. No, 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 don't cry. Like, it's, it's really, it's okay. Like, no, it's really okay. It doesn't matter. No, I'm not, I don't want your insurance. I don't want your, l- stop calling the police. The girl, like, stop, chill out. And I bring her over and I look her down the side of my car and it just goes like this. And I'm like, which dent is yours? Like, there's 14. 14- <laughs> if you told me that the cart didn't even hit it, I would believe you. Like, there's so many scrapes, like, it does not even matter to me. You park your car in your driveway, and you know the neighbor across the street has been learning to ride a bike, and he's been dumping this thing like 12 times a day, right? He's still got grips on the handlebars, but there's no rubber on the end. It's just exposed, rusty steel on the end. You see him coming in your driveway. You know he's coming in hot. You know this is not going to end well. He comes in. He takes the handlebars right down the side of your car and then tumbles, and he skins up his knees and you come over and you genuinely care about how the kid's doing more than you care about your car like I know if you got a nice car you pretend you care about your kid but you're like holding the kid and like looking over at your car like is it okay like how bad is it Like you got to scrape down your car and you don't even care like as long as the thing starts and gets you where you want to go like that's all you care about and then finally you graduate from that place and you you got a new car and now you got something to worry about, right? Like, you didn't worry about that other car at all. Like, you could care less. This car, now you worry about it. Like, you park at Walmart, but you park closer to the bank, you know, over there in the corner. you got to walk like a football field length just to get to the door. You come out, and you look how far you got to push your, your cart to get to your car, and you're like, oh my goodness, why did I even do this? Now you've got an additional chore of washing and waxing your car every Saturday. Your friend asks you if they can borrow your truck, but you're like, I don't really feel comfortable with that. I'm sorry, it's not available. It's already booked, you know. Like, you have something to worry about. More money sometimes can be more problems. And you can see how this can consume you in a way that's not healthy spiritually. Of course, I think it's good, good to take care of your stuff and to be a good steward of the stuff that God has given you. But we probably all could see how this could consume us in a way That's unhealthy. What Jesus is saying is don't get so consumed with earthly things that you forget that there's so much more to this life. Then he tells us where to invest. He tells us to invest in heaven. And it's like, okay, invest in heaven. Like how in the world do I do that? I don't really know how to invest in heaven. And there's a lot of ways that you can invest in heaven. But kind of one way that you can invest in heaven is by tithing. And this idea comes up first in Genesis 14. The first time we see it, Abraham gives 10% of all that he has to Melchizedek. That's the first time we see somebody tithe. Then in uh, Exodus and Leviticus, we see this this idea solidified of giving 10%. And God actually doesn't just ask for 10%. That's what the word tithe means, is 10%. He doesn't just ask for 10%, he asks for the first 10%. This is the first fruits of our labors, what the Bible says. And the reason that Jesus asks for this is because he wants to be first in our life. He doesn't just simply want us to give the last 10% after we've paid our bills and done all the stuff that we wanted to do, to give the last 10%, like if it happens to be there and left over, like, okay, God, I'll give you a tip, like you did good in life. That's not what God wants. He doesn't want what's left over at the end. What he asks us to do is to give up front, in faith, believing that when we give God the first 10%, we believe his blessing is going to be on the rest, and that 90% will go further than it would have under my blessing, in my hands, with his blessing on it. So the place that we're supposed to give, according to the Bible, is to the place that we're being fed spiritually. For me and my family, this is the place that we're being fed spiritually. I don't know if you've actually thought about this or not. I'm a pastor here at Family Life Church, but my wife and I are both also on the membership role here at Family Life Church. This is the place that God has planted my family to be developed spiritually. This is the place where spiritual development is going to happen for my family. I have... Uh, two younger daughters that are here this morning. One of them's downstairs in kids' church. The other one's sitting up, up here to see if I preach this message better uh, this morning than I did last night to her. Um she was not as good of an audience as I was looking for, but she got the job done. My kids are downstairs being fed. They're learning about Jesus. They're learning about a God who loves them and created them and wants to have a relationship with them learning about how he designed them, how he designed them to work in life, and learning about this wonderful, amazing God. This is a place that spiritual formation takes place for my younger daughters. I have two older girls that are in youth group, and that's a place where spiritual formation is happening in their hearts. My two older daughters and my wife are on a missions trip in Alaska right now. When my wife and I were growing up, missions trips were very formative in our lives, and so we believe that that's important for our kids, and so our kids are on that mission ship. This is the place where we're being fed spiritually. And so because of that, this is the place that my wife and I tithe. This is the place that we give the first fruits of our income. It's the place that God has planted each one of you to. Your families, God has planted you here for spiritual formation. So tithing is like the baseline for giving. And when I say that tithing is the baseline for giving... There's a lot of things that I mean by that, but I'm just going to give you a couple examples. The first one is in Matthew 23, 23. Again, this is Jesus speaking, and he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a a tenth of your spices, your mint gum, your dill pickles, and your taco seasoning. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So what Jesus is saying here is you've missed the heart of tithing. You've missed the heart of giving. You, you kept the law, like you gave the 10% that I required you to give, but you missed these greater areas where I'm looking for you to give. So it's not just tithing that the Lord is actually asking for us. He's actually asking more than that. He's asking us to give above and beyond that too. The other thing that I mean when I say tithing is the baseline of giving is when we look at the New Testament, really when we look at the whole Bible, the timeline of the whole Bible, there's a real turning point in the book of Acts. Leading up until that, there is a lot of teaching on tithing. There's a lot of times where tithing shows up throughout the Bible. After Acts, there's a few times where it's mentioned, but it's not mentioned so much. There's something different that happens in the book of Acts When the believers get filled with the Holy Spirit. When the believers get filled with the Holy Spirit, it's almost as if teaching on tithing is not necessary anymore because the believers have graduated to a new level of giving. I call it radical, extravagant generosity. So it takes a certain amount of faith to give 10%. And I'm not trying to to minimize that. It takes a certain amount of faith to say, God, I'm going to obey your command and believe that somehow, but with less money in my hand, the money is going to go further. That takes a a level of faith. But then in the book of Acts, it goes to a whole new level of faith in these believers. They're not only giving 10%, they're giving way above and beyond that. Some of them are even selling everything they have and giving it all to God. So giving 10% takes a certain amount of faith. But if God asks you to give away all that you have, how many of you know that takes a, a, a little bit more faith? Like 10% is like, that's a stretch, but if you're going to ask me for everything, that's a whole new deal. Like we might have to have a sit down talk about this, God. Like 10%, you know, okay. okay. You're asking for everything, we're, we're going to have to have a conversation. You know, like this is a, a, a new deal. This shows up in Acts, one of the places, Acts chapter 2, verses 45. It says they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who is in need. Check this out. In Rome, there's no social services. There's no social service department. If your neighbor has a need, you can't say, hey, we can stop down to the social service office and see if they can help you. There, there's nothing like that in Rome. The social services is the church. The church is taking care of the needs of the people that are around them. What I want you to see is that this idea of extravagant, radical generosity, it is in your blood. There's something inside of you that when you see a need, you say, I want to give to that need. Maybe you don't do it. Maybe you don't follow through with it. Maybe you feel like you can't financially. Maybe you have other priorities. But there is something inside of you that says, you know what? I want to give. You were designed by God. It is in your DNA to be a giver. A radical giver. I was thinking about this yesterday. I was sitting out cooking like a hot dog at a softball tournament yesterday. All day sitting out in the sun like I felt like I was good and good and cooked by the end of the day. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking about that it is in our blood to be givers. It is, it's in you. When you became a believer, when you became born again, it became a part of your DNA to be a giver. I was thinking about my dog. I have a dog, and I didn't really used to be a dog person, but as it turns out, I kind of became one, which is weird, but I did. I'm, I'm a dog person now, which I don't know why people don't lo- like dogs. It's kind of like not liking happiness or something, but whatever. So I have this dog, and it's weird because you take an animal and you bring it into your house, which is just a strange idea. Like, I also hunt animals, as it turns out, too, which is weird. So some animals are okay to come in my house, and some would be less comfortable, you know. But. It's weird that we let animals just come into our house. But this animal comes into my house, this dog, and he acts very civilized. Like, he acts like he should be there, and it seems appropriate for him to be there. And he kind of does what I tell him to do, kind of like the kids. Like, he does what I tell him to do, and he acts civilized. He almost acts like a person. Like, But it's also, it's still a wild animal. And I find this out sometimes, that there's still some stuff in his blood that's a little he's not as civilized as he acts sometimes like he'll come over to me and i'll be sitting in my chair and he'll he'll put his uh, he'll put his head up to my knee and start pushing it over and if i don't like pay attention he'll push it over a little bit harder and what he means is he wants me to slide over so i slide over in my chair then he jumps in my chair and he turns around so he faces the same direction to me and he plops his face down on my knee like he acts like a very civilized dog and even if i let him he'll like come up and he'll lick my face like a wild animal licking my face. Like if this was a tiger, I would feel very different. I don't know why I'm so comfortable with a wild animal. He's got teeth, like this far. He'll even put his tongue in my mouth, which I'm not cool with, but he'll do it. Like, it, like we're not that close, you know. Um, but every once in a while, he reminds me that he's not as civilized as I think he is. We'll see a squirrel, and he'll rip my arm out of socket and drag me across the street like a crazy... Like, he's a hunter. It is in his blood. He he tries to hide it real well while he's putting his tongue in my mouth. But then when he sees that squirrel or bird, in fact, a couple Sundays ago, April was late coming to church, and some people were picking on her. And the reason she was late was because my dog saw a bird out the window, and as soon as she cracked open the door, boom, he was gone. He went out there and we're down one bird in Warsaw, as it turns out, from that session there. But one time my dog, I'm not even kidding, so my dog also he's he's not just a hunter, but he's also a protector. It's his job. And so like his arch nemesis is the mailman. The mailman literally thinks he can come up on my dog's porch and just act like everything is cool. And my dog's like, maybe you don't understand. This is my porch. Like I own this porch. What are you doing here? And when my dog hears the mailbox, like it like shuts, like chink. When he hears that, it's like, boom. He is like coming for the mailman. And our mailman is scared of my dog, rightfully so. But the main reason he's scared of my dog is this one time, the dog was like on the other side of the house. And I heard that little like, chink. And I was like, oh, I had terror in my heart because I realized I left the window open. I try and make sure the windows are like closed when the mailman comes around because I'm afraid my dog is going to kill the mailman. My dog comes flying through the living room at like 100 miles an hour probably 15 feet away from the window. He goes full Superman airborne. The screen is still there. He goes through the screen. He chases my mailman across the street. There's like a big brick building across the street. My mailman is trying to pull himself up on the ledge, trying to get away from my dog, who's got him pinned down in the corner. He's trying to eat the mailman. Like He's not as civilized as I think because there's something different in his blood. In his blood is DNA that's printed on his heart to be a hunter and a protector. And he kind of like lets it go underground sometimes while he's looking my face and acts like everything's cool, but sometimes he just can't even help it. Inside of you, like that, in your blood, it's put there by God to be a giver. And sometimes you can't help it. And when you give, it's like you realize, like, I just... I just walked with God. I just entered into what God made me to be. And you give, and something inside of you is like, yeah, like, that's what I'm supposed to do. It is in your blood to be a giver. The next thing that Jesus says is, money is always an issue of the heart. This is in Matthew 6, 21. It says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, Jesus is not after your money. Jesus could simply make more money. It's not a big deal to him. The Bible says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's all his. Like, he's not short on cash. It's not what he's asking you to give. He's after your heart. And he knows the easiest way to direct your heart is to direct your money. Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And most people believe that it's opposite. Most people believe it's flipped. It's the other way around. Like you think like, I'm into gardening and because I love gardening and I'm into gardening then I want to go and I want to buy more stuff and more gardening stuff, more plants and more shovels and fertilizer and all this stuff. And Jesus is saying, no, you're into gardening because you bought plants and because you bought fertilizers and because you spent money on that stuff, your heart for it grows This is one of those times where you got to kind of look at the Word of God, look at the Bible, and say, did God make me, and does He know how I work better than I do, or do I know better than Him? This is how most people think. We think our heart follows our treasure. I had a friend who um, always wanted a 1970 Chevelle. I didn't know it, but apparently a 1970 Chevelle is like the best year Chevelle. I don't know. He had a Polaroid picture, and in this Polaroid picture, his dad was driving, in ni- or his grandfather was driving a 1970 Chevelle, and his dad, who was like two or three at the time, was sitting shotgun. His dad had cigarettes rolled up in his white T-shirt, a box of cigarettes, and his dad was sitting there eating a uh, ice cream cone at like two or three years old. And he just had this Polaroid from his family. He always wanted a Chevelle like his grandfather had. As he got older, you know, he'd tell everybody, one day I'm going to get a Chevelle. And So in one time his friend told him, hey, there! I saw a Chevelle that's being auctioned off on eBay. Like, it looks exactly like the one that you want. So he's like, all right. So he gets on eBay and he sees it and he starts bidding on it and it was in Arizona. He ended up winning the auction and buying this Chevelle. His friend drove him out to Arizona and he picked up the Chevelle. And he drives it all the way back to New York. It was, he said, there was still paint on the frame, like it was immaculate, like not like a Chevelle in Western New York, like a Chevelle from Arizona, right? So he gets it back, and he, you thought he was in love with the Chevelle before he bought it. Now that he spent money on the Chevelle, it's like he is in love with it to a whole nother level. But he decides he's not happy with the paint job, and so he found out who the best painter in Western New York was, and he went to the guy and. They kind of talked through what he wanted, and he was going to get the Chevelle painted. So he gets the Chevelle painted, he gets it back, and it's like, man, this dude had a smile on his face like you can't even imagine. Like, if you thought he loved the Chevelle before, like, he loves it to a whole nother level now that he got this paint job. But he's looking at it, he's had this new paint job on the Chevelle for like two or three days, and he starts looking at it, and he's going, I'm just not happy with the wheels and the tires on this thing. Like, It's time to get some new wheels for this thing. So he's looking all over, scouring the internet, trying to find exactly what he's looking for. He had a picture in his mind of exactly what he wanted, but he couldn't find it anywhere. He went to every tire shop in the area, every wheel shop, and said, you know, this is what I'm looking for. Do you guys have anything? Nope, we didn't have exactly what he wanted. So he went to a guy that makes custom wheels. Went to this guy, they sit down, and he draws something up in CAD form, and he says, how's this? And he says... It's close, but I want it a little more like that. And so they kind of go back and forth. Finally, they get him the design that he wants for these wheels. So he orders the tires and wheels. He said he wouldn't even tell me how much the, the wheels cost. It was absolutely absurd, but he figured, like, okay, I finally have the wheels that I want. So he gets the tires and wheels. Like, now he's going to be good with the, with the Chevelle, right? He says, like, I'm just not happy with how it sounds. I think I'm going to put a new muffler on it. Is it okay? So he goes and he starts looking, listening to all these clips on YouTube of all these different mufflers, trying to find out what muffler he wants, right? Then he decides a not. it's not, not going to get the job done. He needs a complete exhaust. He needs new headers for it, like all this. So he gets, gets a new exhaust for the car. You think like he's happy with it now. He's spent way too much money on this Chevelle. But he's like, I'm, problem is I'm driving down the road now and I can't hear the radio. So I like, I think I need a new sound system in this thing. So He takes it and he drops it off at this shop that specializes in restoring classic cars. And they're going to put a sound system in it. And the guy calls him back and he's like, hey, I will put the sound system in it if you want. But like the interior of this car does not match the exterior of this car. Like while I've got it here and I'm going to have it torn apart, like Jonas, do you want to replace the interior on this thing? And the guy's like, I think I might. I think I might. So he's like, send me some pictures. So the guy sends him some pictures of what it could look like. And he's like, yes, that is exactly what I want. So he gets the whole interior done on the thing. And he loves his Chevelle. His love for the Chevelle is starting to become a problem in his marriage, in fact. His wife feels like she's competing with the Chevelle for her husband's love. Like He used to spend time with her, but now it's just everything is about the Chevelle. This guy used to go to church a lot, but now it's like he doesn't really have as much time anymore. He's going to car shows on the weekends and like... It, it's becoming his life, you know. Like he loves this Chevelle. So then he gets his car back from the guy, and he, he's in love with it. And he comes out one morning, and looks at it, and he's like, "You know, there's water spots every morning from the dew on my Chevelle." That day it was one of that those times of year where there's pollen just all over everything. And he's like, "I don't want pollen on my poor Chevelle. I don't want water spots in this thing. I, I'm gonna build a garage." So he calls the guy. It starts out as just like a normal garage, you know, 20, 30 grand, something like that. Before you know it, it's like, he's like, if I'm going to build this garage, then I'm going to build it right. And I only want to do it once. And the garage kind of starts looking more like a house on the inside. It starts turning into a man cave. And it's kind of going over top, kind of getting crazy. His wife is like, I kind of feel like this is like becoming a problem in your life. Like it was cool in the beginning, like you had a Chevelle, but like, The Chevelle lives in a house that's nicer than our house now. Like, What's the deal? Like, He's like, well, I only want to do it once. I want to do it right. He used to go to his kids' games all the time, but now it's like he's got to work overtime to try and pay for the Chevelle. And the truth is, he didn't really have money for all this stuff that he bought, so he kind of went into debt to get most of this done. Now he's got this beautiful home for his Chevelle. The centerpiece in this huge man cave is this gorgeous Chevelle. The problem is, by the time he gets to the, he's got like a half mile long driveway. By the time he gets his Chevelle off the driveway and on the road, it's all dusty. So he's like, I, I got to get this, this driveway paved now. So then starts getting quotes to get the driveway paved. I'm not kidding. This is not a made up story. Getting quotes to get the driveway paid. By the time his driveway is paved, he's got $200,000 into his Chevelle, his driveway, into his house for his Chevelle. He's gotten a little bit obsessed. His heart is kind of following his money on steroids. This all comes to a head, and this is where I kind of got called into the situation, when this guy's supposed to go on a vacation with their family. He decides he can't go on the vacation with his family because there's a car show. He has to work overtime every Friday to try and get enough money to pay for this stuff. He doesn't go on vacation with his family, which you think would like be enough of a sign like, Something might not be right here. His wife comes back, goes to take the luggage in the house. She goes in the house, and the bed's not in the bedroom. She's like, "That's weird. Like, where is the bed? Like, what did you do with the bed while I was gone?" And he kind of sheepishly, like, has his head down and he says, "Well, like, you were gone and the kids were gone. It was like just me in the house. I was gonna be sleeping in the bedroom alone. Like, I, uh, I took the, the bed to the, to the garage." She's like, what do you mean? And she says, well, I, I slept with a Chevelle. <laughs> and when I talk to this guy, I'm like, so you take this bed where like, you're supposed to like, sleep in that with your wife, maybe hang out with your wife, you know, whatever. And y- you move the bed to the garage where you know your wife is not going to get <laughs> into the bed in the garage. And you slept next to the Chevelle. And he's like, yeah, like, and he like there was no problem here. Like this guy's heart has followed his treasure. As it turns out, what Jesus said is right where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Maybe you can look at this guy like he's a psycho and he is. He's getting saved again, and he's gonna come around, hopefully, once we put his Chevelle in the crusher. But maybe you're not crazy Chevelle guy. But we all have some of this in us. Where we sow financially into something, we buy stuff that we think is gonna satisfy, and then our heart begins to grow for these other things. There's a giant advertisement machine that works 24 seven to tell you that what you have is not enough. To tell you that if you just had this new thing or that new thing, then you would be satisfied And Jesus steps into the middle of that and he says, listen, I know how this works better than you do. I know how you work. As it turns out, I made you. This is going to destroy you if you let it. Don't invest in things that will lead your heart to the place that you don't want to go. Sow your finances into heaven and let your heart follow. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but We can convince ourselves that we need to spend money on just about anything that we want to. It's kind of crazy sometimes the way that we convince ourselves of things. Jed Wilson and I pick on each other about this a lot. I don't know, um, I wish he was here this morning so I could pick on him publicly, but I'm going to do it anyways and let him watch after. Jed Wilson and I are always like picking on each other for the way that we convince ourselves that we need something. It's like, oh, I need that. I remember one time Jed went hunting, and he, he, well, I shouldn't say Jed, one of us, went hunting and missed the deer that we were shooting at, right? And it wasn't the fact that we didn't practice with the gun. It wasn't that we didn't spend enough time with it. It wasn't that we didn't have a good rest. The problem was the gun. Like, it must have been the gun. So it's like, all right, next year I'm getting a new gun, right? And so then one of us, me or maybe Jed, um, went and started researching Guns, and I don't know if any of you get in that phase where you're like looking to buy something and you start researching and it just kind of gets cons- consuming and you're like researching way too much and your wife is like, come to bed, like what's the matter with you? Like what are you doing? I'm praying, I, I'm definitely praying that God would show me the right gun to get, you know? Are you really looking at guns on the internet again? Like come on, let's go, go to bed. And then you start researching and you're, you're getting more into it and then Jed or me goes and looks at the guns that they're gonna buy and comes back, and then Jed said this phrase to me, or I said this phrase to him, it was him, though. It's not, he said, John, it's not just a gun we're talking about. This is a family heirloom. (laughs) Jed, I don't know what kind of drugs you're doing, but pass them my way. Like, what is the matter with you? Like, are you crazy? This is a gun. Seven generations of Wilson men will hold this gun. It will provide for our family for generation after generation. And Michaela's just sitting there like, what am I going to do with this guy? We can convince ourselves of the most ridiculous things. And sometimes we know we're full of it. We're full of nonsense. But we just keep convincing ourselves that we need this thing. I was listening to one of my favorite preachers, Timothy Keller, talk about this. And he said this line that cut me to the heart. He said, money flows effortlessly to that which is your God. Money flows effortlessly to that which is your God. To the thing that you've made the God in your life, you don't have any problem spending money on that. The problem is for many of us, that thing isn't the one true God, it's something else in our life. So how do you know if you have a generous heart? I need to get moving. How do you know if you have a generous heart? And I'm just going to go ahead and end here for the sake of time. A generous heart has an eye to see a need and a heart to meet the need. Do you have an eye to see the needs around you and a heart to meet it? Or do you not even hardly notice the needs around you? Have you become so consumed with yourself so consumed with the stuff of this world that there's needs all around you and you don't even see it. I know sometimes I have. A really good example of this to me is someone that some of you will know. His name was Art Bar. Art Bar had an eye to see a need and a heart to meet that need. I cannot even tell you how many times Art Bar called me and said, hey, I think this person could use some money. Would you be able to get that to them? And I don't want them to know that it was me that it came from. Over and over and over again, Art would call me and he would say that. Hey, Pastor, could you, could you find a way to get this money to this person? But don't let them know it was for me. I can't tell you how many people he's helped them fix their cars over the years. He said, hey, yeah, come on over to my house. He'd come over and he'd wor- you'd work on the car, you'd, find, you'd get the car torn apart and you'd find out what's wrong with it, and Art says, here, here are the keys to my truck. You take my truck, you go to work, you run your family around, you do what you got to do. I'll go get the parts tomorrow, and then we'll get them. You meet me back here after work, and we'll get this thing fixed up and buttoned up for you. Then you show up the next day to fix the truck, and Art's, every time, I c- if you've worked with Art, you've heard this phrase, I got going down the road, and I had the window. The receipt just got sucked out the window. I don't even know. Like, Art, let me pay you for the part. I can't even tell you how much they were. That receipt just always gets sucked out that darn window. Like, you think I'd learn, but I just don't. There were times that Art loaned people money, and I told him, Art, don't do it. You're never going to see that money again. No, they said they're going to pay me back. I'm good with it. Art, you're never going to see the money again. And Art would say, between them and God. I'm not worried about it. Art could have built himself a nicer house. Art could have got all kinds of nicer stuff. But it was hard for him to do that when there were so many needs around him that needed to be met. And he'd rather see his money be used by God to meet a need. But so many times we don't even see the needs around us. We don't even see it. We're so consumed with our stuff and the stuff that we want to do. Our needs, our perceived needs and our wants, that so we don't even sometimes see the needs around us. The way you can know whether or not you have a generous heart is do you see the needs around you and are you willing to do something about it? Would you bow your heads this morning? God, you've been so incredibly generous to us. It's hard to even wrap our minds around your generosity. Even just in something as simple as beauty. You give us mountains and valleys and rivers and lakes and oceans. This beauty that's not necessary for life, but it was so generous. With food, you don't just give us something to eat to make us survive, but you give us stuff that tastes good, And God, you give those same gifts to people who hate you. You're so generous. You give us salvation that we don't deserve. You take our rebellion, our hatred, our sinfulness in our heart, and you give us the righteousness of Christ. So we could be holy, spotless before a perfect, God, you're so generous. And God, we turn around and we close our fists with the money that we have in our hands as if somehow we can do better with it than you can. God, we ask you to forgive us for not being generous. Lord, we ask you to give us an eye to see the need around us. Lord, I ask that as people step out, Maybe people tithe for the first time. Maybe people start to give extravagantly in a way that that they had never done before and never even really dreamed about. Lord, they would find you right there to meet them in that place and to bless them in a way that they didn't even know was possible. Lord, I ask you to make us a generous people. Make us like you, God. In your name we pray. Amen. Have a blessed week. Go be givers.